0: everyone. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be from Revelation 3, 7 through 13. If you're using a pew Bible this morning to look that up, that'll be on page 1029. Page 1029. And as you're turning there, I wanted to take the opportunity to thank all of you that were able to show up and participate in our Guatemala fundraiser on Wednesday. Um, Going into that fundraiser, I had in mind, if we could raise around $500, that would be amazing. And for those of you that were there, you know things got a little crazy. And uh, we auctioned off some desserts. And to give you an idea, uh, three pies um, ended up totaling about $800 that were raised. So uh, that, was, that was all God right there. Um, so between the silent auction that took place and the live auction that took place, we were able to raise about uh, $1,780. And that's still uh, not counting just general donations. So we'll be able to give you a final number next week. Uh, But it was a great time together. So thank you again for participating in that. So we're going to read Revelation 3, starting in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, in my own new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.
1: Just one footnote to add to uh, Wednesday night. Uh, Those of you who were there, at the end of the service, we prayed for Brenda Purcell, and um, she had gone in for a cancer checkup, and it did not go well, and the doctor was pretty frank with her of what her options were going to be. And then they got the test back and said that somehow everything came back uh, benign, and they were pretty confused about that. We were less confused. Amen? And so we're, we're rejoicing. Uh, with the Purcells on this great news and um, so I wanted you to know that if you hadn't heard that. The elders and deacons uh, last week uh, got together for a retreat and one of the things that we listened to was a uh, message by Sinclair Ferguson on revival and times of awakening in the church and he talked about certain characteristics that were common in revivals and of course uh, one of those was prayer right although he said that the prayer was not initiated by his people the prayer was initiated by God God burdened his people to pray in a way that they could not not pray and he said that that then would lead to a renewed focus and emphasis on Jesus Christ and then that would lead to a renewed boldness in preaching focused on Jesus Christ. And then he made a couple of statements that have really stuck with me this week. He said that preaching he, he was speaking about preaching, and he said, preaching is a dialogue. And I thought that was interesting. That's not how we typically think about preaching. We think of preaching as a monologue, right? One person talking. And he said, preaching is a dialogue. In fact, it is the most important, intense dialogue you will ever have in your life. Because when the word is preached faithfully, the spirit of God goes forth. The spirit of God speaks and begins a dialogue with your heart and with your mind, and your soul, and your spirit. Have you ever felt that in a, in a service? You're convinced the preacher is, is looking right at you. He's found something out about you, and he's just picking on it. And, and, and the, the word is working on your heart and your mind, and maybe you're even wrestling with the spirit during the service. I think this is the dialogue that he is talking about, between the Spirit of God and the ones who are hearing it. And then he, then he, he said this, and I, and I say this, this is about the congregation, I say this not as the one preaching, but as the one who is typically sitting next to you. He said, the congregation is at least half the sermon. And it's one of those things, I didn't know exactly what he meant, but I knew he was right, He said, when the congregation comes with a great anticipation to hear what the the Spirit will say from the word, when the congregation comes prepared and connected and focused and engaged in what is happening with the proclamation of the word, it, it draws, I wish I had his Scottish accent, it draws every last ounce out of the preacher, as the preacher responds to the longing of the people to hear the word of the Lord and not to hear the preacher. And and if, if that's true, if the congregation is at least half the sermon, I have to tell you I have not been holding up my end of that deal. I have not been faithful to come in week in and week out and be prepared and be focused and be connected and be engaged in, in what was being preached that week. It's not fair of me to expect the pastor or the preacher to be fully engaged and fully prepared and fully connected if I'm not coming with that same attitude, with that same spirit, and I am resolved to do that. Will you... Partner with me this morning in the preaching of the word of God. Will you be connected? Will you be focused? Will you be engaged? Will you come with a longing to hear what the spirit will say? The reason I kept coming back to this this week is I kept reading these verses and it gets to the end and it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. I can do nothing this morning to bring any lasting change or conviction, anything. Only the Spirit can do that. And you have a part to play in that. And I have a part to play in that. So with that in mind, let's pray as we begin this morning. Our Father, we come to you longing to hear your voice, longing to sense your presence, longing to be filled with your spirit, that it would illuminate the word for us, that it will convict us of sin, that it will challenge us, that it will will expose anything in our lives that we are hiding, that it will break down any barriers that we would put up against you this morning. And that we would see the truth of your word and that we would hear your voice clearly as we testify of Christ in this passage this morning. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In, uh, in my travels and missions trips and uh, travels for business, I've had the opportunity many times to uh, speak to people in a different country in a different language, in a different culture, in a different place, and uh, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to do. I've actually come to really enjoy it, although it has some unique challenges, if you've ever done that. You're speaking through an interpreter, which is always an adventure. Um, you're praying, especially if you're preaching, you're praying that what you're saying is what they're hearing. Uh, when you've got one little hop in between, there's a lot of prayer that goes into that uh, before that happens. But the, the other challenge, I think the more important challenge, And significant challenge is that you are are speaking to people in in a different culture, a different language, a different place. Uh, You you have to know your audience if you're going to speak in a way that is clear, that they can understand. You really have to know your audience. And so I spent a lot of time beforehand speaking to the missionaries, speaking to locals, really trying to understand everything I can about the people that I'm going to be talking to so that I don't just waltz in there with this kind of Midwestern American mindset and just assume they're going to understand everything I say, right? I need to understand, you know, if I say this, if I use this illustration, if I I, I don't want to use American slang that they wouldn't understand, or I certainly don't want to say something that would offend them because I just wasn't prepared, I didn't know my audience. And the reason I mention that this this week is as we come to this text in Revelation chapter 3, our first challenge is to understand uh, the audience that Jesus was writing to here, Right? We don't want to just assume a 21st century American mindset when we read these verses. This was written uh, to a small church in Asia Minor, in Philadelphia. That, that's the, the original meaning we want to understand first, which will guide us through this text, which I think is very clear, and will guard us then from distraction. There's much distraction in this text. You could preach at least four maybe five different sermons from this text. And, and yet there is one melody, I love that, that Toby talks about the staying on the melody, there's one melody in this text that we wanna focus on. We'll touch on the periphery at times, but only when it helps, un, helps us understand the melody. And the melody is this, the faithful church must focus on the faithful savior. I don't know if you caught that when, when Jordan read this text. Jesus speaks of himself 20 times in seven verses. This letter, especially more than any of the others, is, is a, a, more about Jesus, as much about Jesus than it is about the church. And there is something that the church at Philadelphia needed to understand. And so that's the, that's the point, that's the melody that we will stick to this morning in this text. To, to understand this church a little bit better, let's talk about the church in Philadelphia first. Can you imagine what it was like for this church to receive a letter from the Apostle John? What kind of excitement that would have brought in this church? Everybody knows the Apostle John. And we have a letter that came from him. And not only that, as you start to read it, these are the words of Jesus Christ himself. How excited would you have been in a little church in Philadelphia that this letter has found its way to your little church? And then as you read it, you realize this isn't just some random letter that found its way to your church. He's actually writing to seven churches. And I think I've got a map here, of the seven and, and he starts to read. Here's the seven churches I'm going to talk to, right? Ephesus, of course. Everybody knows about Ephesus. And, and Smyrna, and I can't see these. Uh, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, right? And, and as they're listening to these, wait a minute, Sardis is just a couple days' walk from here. Philadelphia. John knows about this church, Jesus knows. About this church, I suspect that they were very engaged and connected uh, to what was being said when this was read for the first time. That is, the, that, that is the, the understanding we want to get from this text. What did the church at Philadelphia understand this text to mean? And that will guide us into the truth that we need to hear about our faithful Savior. A couple things in context about the church so we can understand our audience. Uh, It's a very interesting place in that it was in a a satellite city. Philadelphia was a satellite city. It was not a city that grew up organically like most cities would. It was actually established as a a Greek charter city. Think of it that way. Kind of a, a showcase of the Greek way of life. They would, they would strategically plant these cities in areas that, that were not Greek uh, to, to influence that area to become Greek. And so they would sell the, the Greek way of life and Greek culture and Greek, the Greek language, Greek philosophy, Greek religion. And they were very successful. Within a few generations, this entire area had turned Greek. And that's where this church is. And, and just like last week in, in Sardis, uh, this area was, was in an area near uh, volcanoes Um, and fault lines and so the earthquake that destroyed Sardis last week also devastated Philadelphia and it was a very fertile but very unstable place to the point that the people who worked in Philadelphia didn't live there they commuted because they didn't trust the buildings and and listen as we go through this this is going to help us understand why Jesus says some of the things that he says Uh, this, this place was known for their athletic games and um That influenced maybe what Jesus says about conquering and crowns. Uh, It was named for the founder, Attalus. He he had a fierce love and loyalty for his brother, which is where the name comes from. It literally means lover of his brother, Philadelphia. It was a small church. Uh, We know there were Jews in the church by the content here. Uh, It was a Greek area, so there would have been Gentiles in this church as well. And like many churches in this area, they faced excommunication from their places of worship. They were kicked out of the synagogue. They were kicked out of their places of worship. They were persecuted. They were opposed. And this church was likely founded by Paul during his Ephesus ministry. And yet it lasted 13 centuries. There is evidence of this church existing in the 14th century, which is amazing when you, when you hear what is going on in this church. That is the audience that this was written to in the first century. And this is who Jesus is talking to. When Jesus is speaking to this church, he wants them to know who he is. And he gives this introduction, which is an amazing introduction. And, and he, he'd done this for, for the five other churches, if, if you remember. I think I've got a slide for this. That there was a, a, an introduction to Ephesus and Smyrna and the other churches. and. And what's different here, though, is these first five churches, the things that he says to them are largely a retelling of what he already said in chapter one. When he gets to Philadelphia, he says something new and something different to this church that he wanted them to specifically know and focus on. And here's his introduction, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Jesus wants this church to know who he is. He wants them to know who they are believing in, who they have committed themselves to, who they are suffering for, who they may even die for. And he wants them to know where their hope lies, and it's in him, the faithful Savior. And he begins with this, this amazing title, the Holy One. And I don't know if you're in your uh, translations if it is capitalized. I think it should be because it's not a description, it's a title. The Holy One. <clears throat> and the Jews in this church, and any Jews that read this, would understand what Jesus was saying here. This is a title that was only given to God. In the book of Isaiah alone, the Holy One speaks of God alone uh, 27 times. And so Jesus is laying out there for this church, I am God, I'm not just a man, I'm not just a prophet, I'm not just a miracle worker, I'm not a martyr, I'm not an apostle, I'm not even an angel, he's he's saying church at Philadelphia, know that I am God in flesh. This is very important for this church to understand because the the deity of Jesus was under attack in the first century, and it has been ever since. And if you're new to the Bible or new to uh, Christianity or Jesus, uh, you may have some some honest questions here that say, well, wait a minute, how can Jesus say he's God? But then the Bible also talks about God the Father and, and God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, but it also says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. How can there be three gods and yet one God? Right? This, is, and this is a great question. This is the beautiful mystery of what we call uh, the Godhead or the Trinity. And by the way, if you, ever, if you ever say the word Trinity or hear the word Trinity, just turn on autocorrect in your brain and change that to try unity because that's what it means. And that actually describes what it is. Try three, unity one. Three persons, one God. Three persons, one essence, one being. And yet in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And listen, this is, this is really important for us to understand. And we see this even communicated here in these seven verses, a picture of the triunity of God. And, and it's important for us to, to hold to this because if we do not believe that Jesus is God, right, the gospel falls apart. If, if we don't believe that Jesus is God, we have been committing blasphemy here this morning by worshiping Jesus. And so this is not one of those optional doctrines that you can take it or leave it. This is really essential to understand. And, and though there is mystery in the Trinity, the triunity of God, right, the scripture teaches it very clearly. And, and listen, there's a danger whenever you have something you're studying about God who is divine, who is infinite, who is eternal who is transcendent, who is not bound to time and space like we are, the, the, the temptation is to somehow dumb it down, somehow diminish God in some way to help us better explain it or understand it. And there's a word for that, and it's called heresy. Charles Spurgeon said that, that every heresy has the same characteristics. It, it diminishes God in some way and flatters our own understanding in some way. And, and so we need to be careful uh, to, to stick to what the scriptures say clearly about the triunity of God or these divine things even though we have trouble from a human, from our limited human understanding, you know, wrapping our minds about the, around these things. We need to trust the scriptures what it clearly teaches. Three persons, one God and we even see that, uh, hints of that in, in this title, the Holy One. The Holy One is used of God the Father and used of God the the Son, and yet it is never plural. It is always singular. It is never the Holy Ones. It is always the Holy One. Though it speaks of both, it is but one God. And then Jesus here in this passage, in verse 12, speaks of, he claims to be God, and then he speaks of God the Father four times in in verse 12. I'll make you a a pillar in in the temple of my God. I'll write on you the name of my God speaking of God the Father which which highlights the beautiful relationship between the father and son in different roles and you might say well well does calling God the Father my God does that diminish Jesus in, in some way no it doesn't you know how we know that in, in Hebrews chapter 1 God the Father is speaking of the son and says my God and so so there's a beautiful relationship between between the Father and Son in different roles and yet equal as God. And then he, he wraps up this kind of tri-unity bow in this passage um, at the end when he says, oh, by the way, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. As Jesus is claiming to be God, <clears throat> as he is mentioning God the Father, it is the Holy Spirit that is affirming this. And so a beautiful picture of the triunity of god just in these seven verses excuse me <clears throat> and this is this is something that god wanted this church in philadelphia to know they wanted to know he wanted them to know who he is he is god he is the one that they <clears throat> serve and then he says not only am i the holy one i'm the true one and, and when he says the true one here, this is, this is, you can take this two ways. Either he's saying the true one based on, on lies <clears throat> or the true, true one based on uh, falseness or falsehood. And I believe it's, it's the second one. The way this word is used is speaking of truth versus falsehood, which matches the context here. Because this church uh, was accused by the Jews of believing in a false Messiah, believing in a false God believing in a false kingdom, believing in a false religion. And Jesus speaks directly to that and says, no, I am the true one. And when John records the words of Jesus in his gospel, he he reminds us that Jesus is the true light, the true bread, the true vine. He is the true one, the faithful and trustworthy one that they were trusting in. And then he goes further and says, I have the key of David, and who who opens and no no one shall shut, and who shuts and no one opens. And this this is a direct quote from Isaiah 22. The Jews would have understood this. Uh, Isaiah 22, sorry, 21 and 22. He says this. This is a prophecy of the Messiah, but he's speaking to Eliakim, and he says this, I will commit thy government into his hand, And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. And he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. Jesus is saying, I have the key to the kingdom of God. Not not an earthly, temporary kingdom. This is an eternal, spiritual, heavenly kingdom. And I have the key to that kingdom. And when I open, no one shuts. Think about what is happening in the church at Philadelphia. They have been shut out of their synagogues. They have been shut out of their places of worship. They've been told they don't belong. And Jesus says, no, I, I have the key. And when I open it, no one shuts it. This would have been very important for them to hear. That they were in, the door had been opened to them to the kingdom of God. Even though they had been shut out of their places of worship. And then he says, I also shut, when I shut, no one opens. And you can take that two ways. You, you could take that as more the negative of I am, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut out anyone who doesn't believe, which, which we know that if you don't believe in Jesus, you are shut out of the kingdom. Or you can take the emphasis on the positive, which I think matches the context here and that the way it is most often used in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament. When he says, when I shut, no one opens, he's speaking of shutting them in. This is what the, the persecuted church needed to hear. Because they had been taken out of their places of worship. And Jesus says, no, when I put you into the kingdom of God, right, I'm going to shut you in. And he says later in verse 12, you will never depart from the temple. This, this matches uh, the, the picture of the gospel in the Old Testament, uh, Noah and the ark. Remember Noah and the ark? The, the, uh, God provides the ark, which is a picture of salvation. And he provides a door for Noah and his family to go into the ark picture of salvation uh, when the judgment of God is coming. And and it says Noah and his family entered into the ark, and it says that God shut the door. Remember what it said? It didn't say he shut the world out. It said he shut Noah in. The emphasis was on the grace of God, the mercy of God, the deliverance of God from his judgment. I think that's the emphasis here that the church at Philadelphia needed to hear, that like Jesus would say in other places, when you're in my hand, right, no one can take you out of my hand. Oh, by the way, you're in my father's hand as well. No one can take you out of my father's hand. This is a picture of permanence. That when Jesus opens the door to the kingdom of God, right, he then shuts you in for eternal life. What a great encouragement to the church at Philadelphia! What a great encouragement to the churches around the world. I don't know if this resonates with us, right, in the comfort of Midwestern uh, America. This would resonate to those 10,000 house churches in Tehran that that, uh, Steve Wingate spoke about. This would resonate to the persecuted church around the world this morning. And this should be an encouragement to us, right, that, that when we, when God opened the kingdom to us through Jesus Christ, He put us in his hand. right? He started it and he will finish it and no one can take us out of his hand. Be encouraged by that this morning. And so the faithful Savior he said I am God I am the true one I'm the one who opens I'm the one who shuts. And then he he talks about the church and um, uh, a few months ago, when we were we were um, uh, doing the preaching schedule, and it looked out like I was going to be preaching on Philadelphia, I, I volunteered a title. Um, I said, we're going to call it the Philly special. And um, I ended up not doing that, but uh, I had to smile this week as I was studying this that this uh, little church in Philly was special. It was a faithful church. It was one of of only two of seven that Jesus did not rebuke. And again, can you imagine what it was like to hear these words? You know he's going to speak directly to the church at Philadelphia, and you've been listening to the five other churches, and four of them have not gone well. Remember the warnings to the other churches, Ephesus, you have truth without love. Uh, Pergamum and Thyatira really both. You, you have love but not truth, you're compromising, you're accepting the world's sins, Sardis, you're spiritually dead. You imagine what the room was like when they hear the words of Jesus, I know your works. You imagine being the elder in that church and reading those. Well, on the one side, Toby's mentioned this, on the one side that's a, that's a great thing and that he knows they've been faithful he knows that they've been suffering he knows that they haven't denied him and yet he knows their works was this going to be a good thing was this going to be a bad thing you know every one of us will stand before god one day and whether he says this or not we will know that he knows our works does that impact the way you live your life That one day you will stand before God alone. And he knows your works. But he says to this church, I know your works. I know you have but little power. This was not an insult. This was not a rebuke. This was a reality. This was a small church with little influence, with little political clout, with little money. Because it's hard to make a living uh, as a Christian in this culture. I know you have but little power, yet you have kept my word, you have not denied my name. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say, you have kept my word of patient endurance. You see how personal this is to Jesus? I know your works. I know you have but little power. You have kept my word. You have not denied my name. You have kept my word of patient endurance. This is very personal to him. He didn't say, I know you've kept the Christian traditions. He didn't say, you've you've held a high standard of morality. He said, you've kept my word. And you have not denied my name. You see, in this culture and around the world today, in persecuted areas, saying the name of Jesus is dangerous. It will cost you your job. It will cost you your, your church or your synagogue or your mosque. It will, it will cost you, likely, your family. It will put your family in danger. And, and often what happens, though, is that people will come to Christians and say, hey, if, if this happened in the first century and it happens now, if you would just deny Jesus, we'll take you back. And they refuse to deny him. And Jesus said, this, this is personal. You did not deny me. He didn't say you've not denied the faith. He didn't say you've not denied the teachings. He said you've not denied my name. This was very personal to him. And he says, you've kept my word of patient endurance. And I, when I read that, I, I thought of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, familiar words but relevant here. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And how do you do that? You try harder, right? Looking unto Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know what that's saying? He's saying the only way you're going to endure, the only way you can endure is because Jesus has endured on our behalf on the cross in his sufferings. But it doesn't stop there. It says that he's at the right hand of the Father. He continues to endure for us as our intercessor, as our representative, never ceasing to intercede for us. We can endure because he has endured and because he is enduring. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Jesus saying your name before the Father? You see, he wanted this church to know. The faithful church must focus on the faithful Savior. Jesus is all to us. You know what he didn't tell this church to do in Philadelphia, in this Greek city, where, where they were selling the gospel of the Greek kingdom, you know, come to the Greek way of life, he, he didn't tell them that they needed to go out there and compete and sell the Christian way of life as a better way than the Greek way of life. It, it, it's, it's, it's ironic that, that the way they, they would sell the Greek way of life is not that different than the way the, the modern gospel is often presented. We need to be discerning about this, church. The modern gospel is, is often presented like like we would we would sell a a a fad diet try keto it'll change your life try crossfit it'll change your life try essential oils it'll change your life try christianity it'll change your life there's this vernacular that often gets used in the modern church that goes something like this christians are advertisements for christianity christians are good or bad repellent or attractive advertisements for Christianity and and we understand the sentiment behind that right we don't want to be um, barriers to people coming to Jesus by the way we act or the way that we talk or the way that we interact on social media we understand that but the idea that we are a marketing strategy that we are advertisements for Christianity that we are selling Christianity uh, that is not the gospel church we, we are not converts to a religion. Uh, we are witnesses and disciples of a person. Our job is to take people to Jesus. It's not to sell the, the Christian way of life. It's not to sell better morality. It's not to sell the Judeo-Christian ethic. It's not to sell conservatism. It is to point people to Jesus. Listen, this, this isn't, this isn't an, an evangelism strategy or methodology I'm, I'm, I'm trying to communicate. I'm simply saying what Jesus said over and over and over. Just a few verses from, just from the book of John that Jesus said about himself. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to the Christian way of life. Right? I will draw all men to Christian teaching. I will draw all men to a church. And he says, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus is the gospel. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me. To have life. He declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. When the counselor comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you must also testify about me, for you have been with me from the beginning. Church, we, we need to, you know, we're, we're, we're focusing on evangelism, right, and, and taking the gospel to the end, of the end of the world and to the end of the street, right? We need to find some way to get our spiritual conversations from this kind of comfortable somewhat acceptable God conversation, maybe throw a Lord in there every once in a while. We need to get that conversation to Jesus. He's the only one that matters. You know the irony of our hesitation to bring Jesus into a conversation? I understand the hesitation that once you mention the name of Jesus, man, the gig is up, right? Now people know. You're one of those people and now you feel like the pressure's on you to have to answer every question and anything that any Christian has ever done in the history of Christianity, when, when, when that's, that's, that's not what, what we're called to do. And then, and then people will ask that question, so you think you're right and everybody else is wrong. Anybody ever been accused of that? we were talking in our growth group about uh, a pastor who went on 60 minutes and they basically the only reason they, they had him on sixty minutes was to make him look like a bigoted ignorant jerk because they asked him those questions do you, do you think you're right and everybody else is wrong Do you think you're right and this religion's wrong Yes do you believe you're right and this religion's wrong yes I, I, that's not a wise way to approach that conversation folks that it's not our job to defend the gospel as much as it's our job to point people to Jesus right? if, if you come to me and say you, know, you think you're right and everybody else is wrong uh, what I would say is that what I think my opinion is of little consequence to your eternity now what matters is what he said <laughs> what matters is what he did and he said things and he did things that that we cannot ignore he's the one who said I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but by me he said that I didn't say that and then he says that he is God in the flesh and that unless you believe that he is God you will die in your sins and, and then he, he teaches in a way that astonishes everyone including the religious leaders who have been in seminary their entire lives and then he does things that, that no one can explain he raises people from the dead with a word he calms the storm from, with a word he heals people from miles away with a word And then despite living a life of perfect righteousness, he gives his life as a sacrifice. So that people like me, who are sinful, can have hope of forgiveness. And then, he, exclamation point, validation point, he rises from the dead and appears before 500 witnesses, the historical fact of the resurrection. The question is not, do I think I'm right and you're wrong? The question is, he's right. Is he right? I believe he is right. I cannot refute what I read about Jesus, what he said, what he did. I cannot refute that. I believe that. You see... Most religions have a similar view of God, that God is perfect and God is holy and God is righteous. And, and I have that view too, which means his standard, the Bible says, is perfection. He, he can't even look at sin, much less dwell with it. So I have no hope to get to him because I am sinful. I can never bridge this infinite gap between me and God. And so I look to Jesus because he knew I could never get to God, so he came to me. He came to us, God in the flesh. He bridged that gap. He is my only hope. God gives us heaven or hell. He is my only hope. If there's another way to bridge that gap, I will listen. This isn't about being right or wrong. This is about... The only way that I see to get to God is through Jesus. That is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. And that's what we must point people to. And and, Instead of putting pressure on us, it actually takes the pressure off of us because we just point people to Jesus. Look what he said. Can you refute what Jesus said, what Jesus said? Let's talk about that. If you're here this morning and you are searching and as you hear about who Jesus is and what he has said and what he has done, I've got three copies of this book that I will uh, give out this morning. Uh, it's just, who is Jesus? You can see it's not very thick, 130 pages, small pages. Uh, if you are searching today, I know there are people in this room who need Jesus. Jesus. If you are searching, take one step towards Jesus and come and get this from me um, and and just read it. A small investment in your eternity. Read this. Examine who Jesus is. Because what he says uh, demands a response. There is no fence with Jesus. When he says, I am the only way and I am God, you must believe that or reject it. And so make an informed decision by knowing who Jesus is. Like, come get this from me afterwards. There's seven more of these in the bookstore, folks. I would love to run out of these today and have to order 10 more, 15 more, 30 more, 50 more. Go get you one of these, read it this week, and give it to somebody. It's the week of Easter. You're not going to have a a better week the rest of the year. I also have um, 25 of the pamphlet versions of this. Um, And I'll have these up here after the service. I need 25 of you to take one of these and give it to somebody this week. And I'll get more if we need it. We cannot be considered a faithful church if we're not an evangelizing church because that's our first order of business. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. I'll have these up here at the end. The faithful church focuses on Jesus not just in this building right, and not even just in our homes but in our evangelism. Our evangelism must be focused on Jesus he is the only one that matters can I, can I offer a um, just a, a practical way to do to introduce your neighbors to Jesus how many of you have ever had a Jehovah's Witness come to your door okay um, they are coming to your door and to your neighborhood and telling a false gospel and saying false things about Jesus and um, they come to your door and and, and you can talk to them, it's, it's usually a fruitless conversation, but you can talk to them and talk to them about who Jesus is. But watch where they go next. Where are they going next? Your neighbor's house. Right? Are we just going to stand there and let somebody spread a false gospel around our neighborhood? When they leave your neighbor's house, go knock on their door and say, hey, there's these people walking around saying all this stuff about Jesus is not right. I just want you to know who Jesus is. I'm a Christian and it's really important for me to know, for you to know who Jesus is. Uh, Read this. We need to point people to Jesus, that is, we are are followers of a person, not converts to a religion. We are witnesses of him. Uh, Just a few words on the hope of the faithful. I want to talk just a little bit about what verse 10 is saying, because it it really ties the rest of this together. If you've ever um, studied end times, uh, if you've ever read the Left Behind series or saw the movies, um, verse 10 influenced the timeline of that that way of, of thinking about end times eschatology. Uh, that's, that's the, a great tribulation is coming and God is going to rapture the church uh, before the tribulation. It's based on verse 10 here. And, um, if you know, don't know anything about that, uh, that's, that's probably a good thing. But, uh, what does this verse mean to the church of Philadelphia? That's what we try to understand this morning. How would the, verse, the church of Philadelphia understood this phrase, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming from the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth? Well, well, what happened after they read these words? Did, the, the, the focus here is on the, the word from, right? Uh, does, does he mean I'm going to take you from out of trial and tribulation or does he mean I'm going to take you through it? It can be used two different ways. And uh, and so what happened in the church of Philadelphia? Did God take them out of their persecution? Did he take them out of their trial? This church lasted for 13 more centuries and faced all manner of persecution. He didn't take them out of it. So what does this verse actually mean? The key to understanding this verse is not the word from, but the word keep. And if you want to know what the word keep is, just go back to the beginning of the verse because it's used again. And when you see it in context, this makes perfect sense. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. You see how simple that is? Whatever the first kept means, it's the same word as the second keep. As you have kept, I will keep. What does it mean the first time? As you have kept my word, you might suspect that means to guard it, to protect it, to defend it, to treasure it. As you have kept, I will keep. I will guard you. I will defend you. I will protect you. I will treasure you. In the midst of your trials and tribulation. Even even if martyrdom was coming. Remember, Jesus is speaking of his kingdom. The eternal kingdom. The spiritual kingdom. No matter what happens in this temporary, earthly life, I will keep you. For eternal life. I think this matches what Jesus said to uh, when he was praying for the disciples in John 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, the disciples, and, and you know they were getting ready to face persecution and martyrdom, most of them, but that you keep them, same word, from the evil one. He was going to guard them and protect them until they accomplish what he had them to accomplish and then, most importantly, to eternal life. <clears throat> he then says, I'm coming soon, which means i'm coming with urgency just at the right time and then he says i will make the one who conquers i will make him a pillar in the temple of my god and and this is a beautiful picture for the church of philadelphia they had seen their temples crumble to the ground in these earthquakes and aftershocks jesus says in my temple you're going to be established permanently this is a picture of the permanence of the kingdom of god in eternal life because, because you're on the firm, found, like we just sang, right you're, you're on the precious cornerstone and sure foundation of Jesus Christ. What an encouragement to this church. And then he says, I'm going to write my name on you, the name of my God on you. And to, <clears throat> to understand that, you don't have to be a, uh, have a doctorate in theology, just catch a five-year-old after the service and ask them, why do you write your name on stuff? And he'll say, because it's mine. Jesus says to this church, I'm going to write my name on you because you're mine. What an encouragement to the persecuted church. What an encouragement to us this morning. And then he finally just says, hold fast. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. I think this, uh, this text of the faithful savior demands a response i'm going to end here i think it demands a response i've asked um uh, toby and the the praise team to to let us respond in in song to this and reprise the the song we just sang so if you guys could come up i'm going to uh, finish with one word here as you guys are coming up I just wrote these things down as an encouragement to myself as to how to, um, how to focus on a faithful Savior. What can I focus on? How has he been faithful? If you if, just listen to these, or the, if, if there's a slide on this. Um, the faithful Savior, he was faithful to submit to his Father's will and become a man. He is faithful to be tempted in all points as we have been, yet without sin. He was faithful to submit to the unspeakable suffering of humiliation and crucifixion. He was faithful to bear the wrath of God on our behalf. He was faithful to return to his Father to be our mediator, our representative, our high priest. He was faithful to know his people and his church. He's faithful to guard and protect his church. He's faithful to return for his people and his church. He's faithful to win the battle and vindicate his people. He's faithful to guard us from God's final judgment. And he's faithful to shut us into eternal life in his presence forever. A faithful church must focus on a faithful savior. Would you respond appropriately to the preaching of the word and to the picture of Jesus Christ, our faithful savior, as uh, we sing this song to end the service?